Let me just pray and I'll bring God's word to you. Father, we thank you for your word, your living word. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we pray that you will allow your word to always be uh, the authority in our lives. Not how we feel, not how we reason alone, but your word will, your word will always take precedence. Bless our time together as this is a challenging and difficult topic to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this topic that I put down here is hindrances to following Jesus. When I was in Singapore, one morning I woke up early and I've been thinking about what should I preach for the month of January. As we all know, the January is topical kind of a sermon. And this sermon came to mind. I preached this sermon once before in Pakistan, about 30 years ago, in a hospital to many uh, doctors and nurses, one of the devotions, and I was only 28 years old. And for some reason of many sermons that I preached before, this sermon that I preached stayed etched very deeply into my heart. And I take it from the Lord that He, he wants me to touch on this sermon uh, in Luke chapter 9 on hindrances to following Jesus. But I want to say that it is a difficult sermon for you to listen to. All right? Uh, you may feel offended. You may think that I'm harsh. You probably will also walk away pretty upset maybe with me for saying certain things because everything that I say, you will always have a but there. But, 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 you know? You know how we sit there and listening to someone, our mind is also evaluating what the person saying, whether we agree or whether disagree. And I can, I can tell you that you probably have a lot of but in your mind as I begin to expound this word to you. So I want to... I don't know whether I should apologize to you or not uh, for preaching God's word as it is, but I can say to you that you probably think that I'm harsh. You probably would think that I'm a bit uh, uh, rude, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but I want to assure you that it is from the word of God. You know, Christmas is 50, 50 Sundays from now. That's a good way of saying, isn't it? Rather than two weeks ago. Uh, many people have been saying that it is it is good to bring Christ back to Christmas because so much of Christmas is, is not the occasion that we actually celebrate. Bringing Christ back to Christmas. But I tend to think that we actually need to bring Christ back to Christians. We need to bring Christ back to Christians because as, as it is, just like all of us in any situation that we live in, our fervency will slack naturally. Whether you married husband and wife, at some point you're, you, you are no longer as loving as it is in a sense when you first met the person. Maybe the freshness has gone or something like that. And so once in a while, it's always good to go back and return back to what our first love is. What is Jesus' strong words pertaining to discipleship? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean actually to follow Jesus as a Christian? What does it mean? There was a story back in 1891 about a man was killed at a railway crossing one summer evening, 1891. And his relatives sued the railway, claiming negligence on the part of the watchman. And during the trial, uh, the watchman was called to the witness stand. 
and the persecuting attorney asked him several questions. They said, were you on duty on the crossing at the time of the accident? He said, yes, sir. I was. Did you have a lantern? Say yes, sir, I did. Did you have your lantern in warning? Yes, sir, several times. Having answered in the affirmative to every question, the watchman helped the railway win its case. And then subsequently, an officer from the railway came to see the watchman later to thank him for giving evidence in favor of the railway. And the officer inquired, Tell me, Mr. Jarvis, were you nervous during the questioning at the trial? The watchman replied, Yes, I feared every moment that they would ask me, was the lantern lit? You know, I think too many of us Christians are like that at times. They look like disciples. They are going through the motions, but our lantern is not lit. We don't really know Jesus. We know about Jesus, and we don't really follow him in a sense. You know, Christ is often lost. It is lost in the church sometimes. As the story of King Josiah in Second Kings chapter 22, that he discovered the law in the temple and as a result led to a revival during his reign. Christ is lost in the house of the Lord. Christ is also lost sometime in the family, just like Jesus was lost when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple when he was 12 years old. And they didn't discover that he was lost until a day later, on the way back. They discovered he was lost. And by the time they found Jesus, it was three days later. It's recorded in Luke chapter 2. Christ is also lost in the political arena when Jesus stood before Pilate. And Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth, listen to me. And then Pilate responded, what is truth? So he can get lost in the household, he can get lost in the church, he can get lost in the political arena. Most of the Western culture, which has Christian as its heritage way long ago, has lost Christ completely. And C.S. Lewis has this warning. He said, this, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-age prosperity or middle-age adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. Salvation is free, but discipleship is very costly. And let me just read to you the text, and then I'll give you three points, because these three persons respond uh, to Jesus, and Jesus... Uh, also responded to what they say. Okay, let me just read to you this passage first. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. 
but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So three men came to Jesus, three offered to follow him. And Jesus gave them a reply. And the first one I want to give to you is that Jesus is telling the first man, following Jesus means it will be costly. Following Jesus means it will be costly. This is what I call the enthusiastic disciple because he actually volunteered. He was the one that came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. We do not know exactly why he said that to Jesus. I want to join, maybe he has seen Jesus perform miracles, maybe he has seen Jesus' power, maybe because he was attracted to where Jesus speaks with authority. Um, he attracted large crowds and he saw the disciples there and he just wanted to be part of the, the thrones in the sense. He loved it when he heard about Jesus walking on the water and he was astounded by the multiplication of the loaves and fish. And who wouldn't follow a man who would raise the dead and turn water into wine? And so he got excited. He said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. The man may be sincere in his desire, but he has not yet counted the cost. That's why we call him the Mr. Enthusiastic, the enthusiastic disciple. And then Jesus kind of like tell him, have you actually counted the cost of what it means, of what you say that I will follow you wherever you go? Really? Have you really thought about what are you getting yourself into? And Jesus, if you notice through gospel, he never kind of like so hard up, if I may use this, this word. He's very realistic in the sense to help you spell out the cost of following Jesus. And if you're not willing to pay the cost, he will never take you on. The rich young ruler, remember the story about rich young ruler? Jesus actually turned, turned him away. Jesus never called him back. Did you notice that? Jesus never said, oh, I don't really mean to sell everything, you know. I was just testing you, you know. He never did that. He actually let the person go. Because until we count the cost that you will stick through until the end. And Jesus' reply to him is very simple. Foxes have holes or dance, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You really, you, you, you really know what you're following me for? You know, we'll get up each day not knowing where our food will come from. Jesus is telling the disciple, that particular person. You stay with me long enough, you run into some big time trouble. There are some powerful people who wish I was dead, and sooner or later they are going to kill me. And so you may think that I'm exaggerating, but I'm not, Jesus says. The road ahead is hard and the worst is yet to come. Don't be fooled by the big crowds. They'll vanish like the summer mist. True enough, isn't it? They actually literally vanish like the summer mist when Jesus was on the cross. They don't understand who I am and why I came. I don't want any thrill seekers on my team. If you follow me, 
you are going to give up all your earthly security and trust me to take care of you. So are you in or out? Foxes have holes. You know, no matter how, what the foxes do, at the end of the day, they have a hole to go to. Birds in the air, whatever they fly, at the end of the day, they have the nest to return to. Jesus said, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I'm a wanderer. Corey Tambun once said, a true disciple has shallow tent packs. T-E-N-T, tent packs. Why shallow? Because we're moving on in the morning. Have you counted the costs of following Jesus? Or do you follow Jesus out of convenience? Whatever suits you, you know. Whatever your priorities are, as it is, when I'm free only, then I'll come to church. When I'm available, I'll do things. I'll give this to the Lord. Have you counted the costs of what it means to follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus out of convenience or commitment? Martin Luther says, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Why bother? Why bother about Jesus if it costs you nothing? Do you want anything that costs you nothing? J.C. Wright, a very old-time uh, commentator, wonderful words. He said, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. And then he went on to say that a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. So you want a crown of rewards, then you need a cross. There is no crown without a cross. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. Christians have become like a jellyfish. In a little bit, little bit of struggle, they fall. They are not strong. They are supposed to be the sword and light. They are supposed to be the tower of strength. And yet we are easily crumbled. Easily get depressed. Easily we, we get offended. Easily we, we doubt God and say, God, why? If I'm God, I'll say, why not? That's the only way to train you. Why not? Not too sure anybody knows of this guy called Garibaldi, Italian patriot soldier and hero figure, lived from 1807 to 1882. He devoted his life to the cause of uniting Italy. His greatest victory was in 1860 when he overthrew the kingdom of Naples. And that event ultimately led to the unification of Italy. He only had a force of 1,070 men. And within two weeks, he was able to force the capitulation of an army of 20,000 people. And Garibaldi had an incredible committed volunteer army. He would appeal for recruits in these terms. This is what he would say. He said, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor food. I offer only hunger, thirst, 
force marches, battles and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not merely with his lips follow me. And he's able to generate those committed few of 1,000. Or John Wesley used to say, give me 100 men who, who loves nothing but God and I will change the world. We need 100 committed people rather than 1,000 uncommitted ones who just go through motions. Amy Carmichael, one of my great heroes as I was going, growing up, reading about her life from Irish, tough lady, went to India in her 30s and died in India at the age of 83. Never once followed, never once returned to England. And at age 34, uh, 64, he had a very bad fall and bad ridden for the last 20 years of her life. And in that 20 years on bed, she wrote about 20 books, 16 books, and edited many other of her old books. This is what she said. Let us not be surprised when we have to face difficulties. When the wind blows hard on a tree, the roots stretch and grow the stronger. Let it be so with us. Let us not be weaklings, yielding to every wind that blows, but strong in spirit to resist. And then she went on to say, when I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything that I do be called sacrifice? How can anything that I do consider sacrifice? How can Christians even utter that word sacrifice in our vocabulary? when you really consider what Christ has done for us on the cross. That word should never exist in our vocabulary as Christians. The word sacrifice. When you know what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You know the famous hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? Onward Christian Soldiers. There's a, there's a very interesting man that tried to pan the word and say, use it, backward Christian soldiers. And the real chorus say, Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. And he changed the word and said, Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Jesus was the first person, the Mr. Enthusiastic Disciple, is to tell him, have you counted the costs of what it means to follow Jesus? John Stott, the late John Stott, the English uh, statesman, uh, once was on a panel speaking, and somebody stood up and asked him this question, how do you discern God's will for your life? How do you discern God's will? What is God's will in my life? And John Stott was able to summarize up in just one sentence about discerning God's word in your life. He said this. He said, here's how to discern God's will for your life. Go wherever your gifts will be exploited the most. That's God's will for you. Go wherever your gifts will be exploited the most. That's your calling. With God as your sight, whatever we do then is a means to glorify Him. That's all. Go wherever 
your gifts will be exploited the most. So the first disciple, Jesus calling, telling him, following Jesus simply means that it will be costly. It will cost you. It will cost you. It will cost you to sacrifice certain things that you, you rather do. But you say, no, I want to serve God. I want to do this. It will cost you. So don't think that follow Jesus, don't follow Jesus out of convenience. It will cost you. Count the cost. Take up the cross and follow Jesus. The second, oh man. The second uh, man came to Jesus, which is what I call the reluctant disciples. Following Jesus means Jesus is the priority. Jesus is the priority, the reluctant disciple. Jesus now, unlike the first one who volunteered himself, Jesus now said to this man, said, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. What's wrong with that request? Isn't it a very decent thing that we ought to honor our parents? We need to ensure that my father die. I need to ensure that they have a, a proper burial and have a good funeral and a good eulogy and, and everybody go home happy, remembering a good will. And moreover, as a Jewish, maybe as an eldest son, your responsibility is to do that. So this request is perfectly fine. So what was the problem that Jesus was so harsh in replying and said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I mean, his answer on one level seems reasonable. Surely we all understand the need to properly bury our parents. What child would not want to honor his parents this way? We can say this much in favor. He's sincere, he's serious and evidently more thoughtful than the first man who seemed quite caught up in the excitement of the moment. He had tried to count the cost, and that is all to the good. It has been also said that it is not actually true to say that the father died and the man need to go and bury the father. Because as you know, Jew, when you die, you have to bury on the same day. And Leviticus also tells us that there's some ceremonial law that you, a few couple of days that you are not allowed because you'll be con considered unclean and therefore not being in the street. So obviously it is not the case. Uh, most scholars believe that what that man, let me first go and bury my father, is a way of saying that let me wait until my father is dead and gone, then I make a decision to follow you. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't wait. The calling is now. You follow me. You don't wait. I have uh, my friend back in Singapore who was pastoring the church that I grew up, uh, my youth group member, he's the senior pastor there now. And uh, he used to sh tell me, say that uh, he always shared gospel with his father. And uh, his father would always say to his son, my friend, say, wait, wait until your grandfather died first. I will follow, I will come to church with you. He always used it as an excuse. Why? Because his grandfather, uh, and he needs to perform those Chinese rituals 
uh, if the, father, the grandfather died. And so he always said, let me do all these things first, and then once it's all done, I will come and follow Jesus. And my friend said to his father, Dad, I don't mean to be rude, but what if you die before grandfather? What if you die before grandfather? So, so it is unlikely that what this disciple was saying is that Jesus is prohibiting him from honoring the parents and doing what he needs to do. But basically is saying that you follow me now. Don't wait. Don't wait until your father's approval or your mother's uh, are dead and gone. But you take up the cross now and follow me. I know of Christians, so-called, who has been Christian for many years in their 60s and still refuse to get baptized because the father is still around. I say, I can understand that if you are 15 years old. But you are 60 years old. And you have to choose. And we have to choose Christ. And Jesus said, priority. Jesus said, let the dead bear it their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury the dead. There's another way to understand the phrase, meaning to say that it may mean that the father is elderly and near death, and uh, let the dead bury their own dead, meaning to say if you are a non-believer, you are uh, spiritually dead. Yeah? So in some sense, it's like saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physical dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But it's not in any way suggesting that we Christians cannot bury our arms. I don't want you to walk away with that misunderstanding. It's meaning to say that you have spiritual things to do that an unspiritual person can't do. And therefore, Jesus seems harsh, but that is what he means by priority. So, so second thing about Jesus is following Jesus means Jesus is the priority. We have to direct our resources and energy into something that has eternal values or contributing to eternality. It's hard work to hear. Family, I mean, who, who doesn't love our family? Your family is where you, when you get hit, when you get terrible time outside, your boss or whoever, you come home to your family for comfort. And sometimes it is only that time that you find families are so good. So Jesus is not saying at all uh, to reject family. It is only saying that your family must not become an excuse not to serve the Lord. Your family must not become an excuse not to serve the Lord. Don't say, I'll wait until the kids are older. Or until mom is in the nursing home, and then I'll be baptized or whatever. Or when the kids are finished uni, when my responsibility is all gone. People often think only of the aspect, but they don't realize that other things will come in. Your health may not be there. There are other aspects. So it's always now. It's always now. I've said this before, but I want to say it again so that you can become clear. It's not between about family. Uh, 
Timothy Keller says this. He said, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. So families, children, home, all these are good things. But if we make it to become an ultimate things, then they become bad. Let good things be good things. The ultimate thing must be Jesus, must be God in our lives. Let that be the ultimate things. If you put other things become ultimate things, even the good things will become bad things. Or as I said before, uh, St. Augustine called this the disordered love. Our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. It is not that we love the wrong things. All the things that we love sometimes can be good things. Our families are good things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. And everything else that is good then become ugly because become idolatry. You become worship your children, worship your family, worship your job. The ultimate thing needs to be Jesus. You know, as I think about this point that I was plowing through, I must, I must say that I must not look to anyone or anything as the ultimate source of meaning or happiness in life. I must not ask for of them what only God can provide for me. Life is more than marriage and family, as good and sacred as that is. If I place my family above my loyalty to Jesus Christ, then I have created an idol out of something good. And I'm not a true disciple of Christ. I know there is a tension inherent in those words. I, I, I'm aware of that. And it is a tension that I cannot and would not try to resolve. But better to live with the tension than to water down the words of Jesus or to make his call less radical than it really, really is. When Christ calls, I must not delay. One delay, no matter how well-intentioned, leads to another and to another and to another and to another. And finally, we ended up not following Christ at all. So I'll just leave the tension as it is because I really do not want to water down what Jesus meant here. And thirdly, so following Jesus means it will cost you. Following Jesus means that you have to put him in the priority. And lastly, following Jesus means looking forward. Looking forward, which is what I call the divided disciple. The enthusiastic disciple, the reluctant disciple, and this is the divided disciple. Verse 61 and 62 says this, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, when you really look at this verse, what, what the request is, it, it's very, I mean, it's very reasonable. What's so bad about just going back and say goodbye? We all say goodbye. Even today, after service, we say goodbye to one another. And what more is, is, is Jesus, is, is uh, my family. This man is ready to serve the Lord, but wants to tie up a few loose ends at home first. And his request seems reasonable. All he wants to do is to say goodbye to his parents, friends, maybe his girlfriend. Perhaps you throw him a farewell party, give him a thank you card and give him some love gifts on his way. Tears will be shed. Some may question his decisions. All that's to be expected. So why he go home and say goodbye? Why not? Why can't he go back? 
It's not that saying goodbye is wrong anyway. And if you remember the story of Elijah and Elisha, Elijah actually granted a request to Elisha. Elisha said, please let me go and kiss my parents and say goodbye to them first. And Elisha said, go, go. And after he went back, after he went back, he, uh, uh, he returned, he, he burned up, he burned up everything else, and then he followed Jesus. I mean, followed Elijah. Elijah, he went on, he said goodbye, he burned his plow as part of a burnt offering to God. He used that plow that he burned as a way to burn offering to God. And if you burn your farm tools, you are not going back. I was in sales before. I used to sell encyclopedia. I told you many times before. Before the days of... Um, and they, in sales, they always ask you to help them to ensure close the sales on the spot. Because the minute they say, let me think about it, you know what will happen. Yeah, you've done it before, right? Let me think, let me talk to my wife first. Let me consult my husband first. And then usually nothing happened. I remember I went to uh, this, this place, this bullying place, with, uh, they were selling beds. <laughs> they offered free meals. And there's a few couples who went and said, Pastor Glenn, you want to have a free meal? <laughs> we went. They present bed. The bed is amazing. It can contort into all kinds of position for you. <laughs> Every part is supported if you want. And it costs more than $10,000. And the person persuaded one final couple to buy. Never let them go. Almost like blocking them on the way out. I was already way out there. I keep waving. Come on, let's go, I say. $10,000, how to buy a bed of $10,000? Come on, let's go. And that salesman was blocking, give all tactics, because the person know when the, they leave, the answer is always no. And you, you and I know that, yeah? That is why there's such a thing called cooling off period, right? When you buy anything, buy a house or whatever, there's a few days of cooling off period for you to reconsider in the sense so that you won't make decision on impulse. J.C. Wright again once said, those who look back want to go back. Plowing is hard work. It takes time, effort, and concentration to keep the plow moving in a straight line. And that is why Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If you look to the left, the mill will turn to the left. Look to the right, and the mill will wander to the right. If you look back, the mill plows in circles. So if you're going to plow for Jesus, you can't look back. You've got to keep your eyes focused straight ahead. And therefore, Jesus said, keep going. When you look back, you want to go back. You have to keep focused and go ahead. That is ahead of you. Let me wrap up this message with three statements of application. That say, following Jesus is more important than personal comfort. Following Jesus is more important than family obligations. And following Jesus is more important than the approval of others.
So the fundamental meaning of this text is very simple. Following Jesus is the most important thing in life. Everything else pales by comparison. It is not an emotional spur-of-the-moment decision. It is not a decision that can be postponed till later. It is not a phase we go through where we keep our options open. Following Jesus means signing away the rights to your own life. You sign on the bottom line and let him fill in the details. It means Jesus first. No conditions, no delay, no buts, no excuses. And may God help us to follow Christ at any cost, without delay, no turning back, wherever he may lead. Let me close with this uh, illustration. I read a story many years ago about a pregnant Korean woman uh, who fled North Korea during the war. And it was during a cold winter day. As night approached, she began to have contractions. The baby was about to be born. She climbed down under a bridge. And there she gave birth to a boy. It was so cold at night. And she knew that the baby would not survive the frigid air. So she took off all her clothes. And she wrapped him with them. She hugged her baby, trying very hard to keep him warm. The next morning, a missionary couple was driving their truck across that bridge when the wife exclaimed, Stop! And the husband stopped the car. She said, I hear a baby crying. Then quickly jumped out of the truck and ran under the bridge. There lay the baby wrapped in his mother's clothes with his frozen mother dead. Still with her arms around him. The couple took the baby and buried the mother nearby. They chose to adopt the baby. And as the child became older, he asked his adoptive parents about his mother. He wanted to know what happened to her, so the parents told him the entire story how they found him and everything. The boy journeyed to his old bridge and found where his mother lay. And you know what he did? He took off all of his clothes and he laid it on the mother's grave. He took off all the, his clothes and laid it on his mother's grave. And then he fell to his knees and wept. You know, sometimes I wonder for us Christians, have we wonder, have you realized the sacrifice of Christ? That he gave his life for us. I know we say this phrase all the time, but unless that burn in your hearts, your gratefulness, your thankfulness wouldn't flow out of that in service for Him. Will you be willing to come to the cross and fall on your knees and strip off anything in your life that has hindered you from serving Christ? Strip it off. 
that is hindering you, come back to the cross. Start revival in your own heart again. William Temple said, above all else, do not touch Christianity unless you are willing to put him first. I promise you a miserable existence if you put him second. I promise you a miserable existence if you put him second. You know, my friend, the cost of following Christ is great, but the cost of not following Christ is even greater. And I hope that you will count the cost, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. I hope today you're, you reach home, you have a personal time with the Lord, and say a prayer to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it is a very difficult message to listen to, and it's even harder for me to preach. Forgive us, Lord, that our hearts have grown cold. Forgive us that many times we go through motions. Forgive us that we follow you out of convenience. We allow so many things in our life to to distract us from what it means to follow Jesus and all our good things, all our legitimate things. Nevertheless, we have placed them more important than you. Help us today, dear Lord, as we come under the foot of the cross, strip off everything and looking at the cross and realize that Jesus gave it all for us. As the hymn say, Love so amazing, so divine, that demands my heart and my all. So Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning that we in our hearts will rededicate our life to you and determine to follow Jesus at any cost and put you as a priority and never look back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back.